Welcome to The Sword and Trial. Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. Delighted to have you join us again this week as we continue talking about things that are relevant and pertinent to the life of churches in uh, the Western civilization in the 21st century. There's so many things going on, and specifically here in the United States, and uh, even more particularly in evangelicalism, mm-hmm. and even more specifically in the Southern Baptist Convention. And we want to address some of those things today. But before we do, we want to tell you about a couple of things that we have going on we don't want you to miss. Uh, first and foremost, if you've not signed up for the January 2023 conference, What is Man? We encourage you to do this. It's going to be a wonderful conference. we got Vody Balkum, Joel Beakey, Paul Washer coming in. Uh, look forward to having others as well that we will announce soon. Are you going to be there? Uh, I plan to be there. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else other than Southwest Florida in I January. I think I'll be there too. Yeah, you'll be there. So, uh, we encourage you to come. The rates go up, I think, at the end of May or something like that. So you can still uh, get on a good deal of a discounted rate if you go to founders.org and register. And what else do we have going on right now? Uh, for those who are interested in the Institute of Public Theology, uh, we have courses coming up this summer, one by Tom Nettles, Dr. Tom Nettles. That'll be Church History, and then one by Travis Allen on uh, Introduction to the New Testament or mm-hmm. New Testament Survey. Right. I'm really excited about what's going on at the Institute of Public Theology. It seems as though here we are kind of developing sons of Issachar, men yeah. who understand the times, men who know the times. I, I, I think a lot of seminaries do this well, but I, what I've seen at IOPT and the professors coming in and the classes that are taught, the coursework that's being assigned, um, it's really addressing these biblical and theological issues um, with an understanding of, of the moment that we're in right now so that mm-hmm. pastors, ministers, missionaries can go out and, and minister effectively in, in the times that they live. And so application fees are going to be waived uh, yeah. for, for the time being if you're interested in, in taking courses at IOPT. Um, and then you can also take courses, um, you can audit courses. You can audit well. courses, that's right. One of the most uh, gratifying things for me, uh, you know, Tom Nettles and Buddy Bach and myself, we're founding faculty of this institute. And Tom's not been able to teach yet, but God willing, this summer he will get his course uh, taught uh, here in Cape Coral. And you can come in town for that. Pastors, we've got a special deal for you. If you want to come audit it, just contact us. We'll uh, make you aware of that. But both Vody and Mark Coppinger, who have extensive experience in teaching in theological Mm -hmm. academic institutions. Both of them individually have said to me after the courses that they've taught how the class of students that we have in this first year is uh, just outstanding. Uh, I mean, it's been interesting that both unsolicited came to me and said, man, so these guys are serious. These Mm. guys are focused. This has been a joy to teach. And that's that's exactly what we want. I mean, we want serious-minded men who are willing to come in and do work. You don't have to have any credentials. You don't have to... uh, uh, do anything and bring us a piece of paper and saying, look, I've done all these things. We just want to be sure that you're godly to the best of our ability that we can be, that you're a member of a faithful church under the oversight of faithful leaders in that church, that you are willing and able to read and comprehend, and that you're willing and able to write and do hard work. So if, if that's you, then, man, uh, check us out. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. So uh, go to instituteofpublictheology.org, and you can get more information about that. And Dr. Nettles, his church history class will be early church to the Reformation. Reformation, that's correct. I've heard that his lectures on Anselm are phenomenal. So if I don't, if I'm, I intend to take the whole class, but if I can't do anything else, I'm, I'm intending to sit in on just that. Yeah, well, yeah, I can testify. Uh, he was my professor 
professor at Southwestern many years ago. Of course, a lot of church history has occurred since that time. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but that'd be the sec- that'd be part two. But no, uh, actually, uh, Dr. Nettles is the one that helped change my whole attitude toward history. Mm. Because um, I kind of regarded it as just wasted time and effort in college to study. I wasn't thinking rightly. But uh, whenever he began to help me think about all of history is God's work. We just see God's providence worked out as we look back. Mm -hmm. And that it all centers upon Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the presuppositions that he teaches at the outset of his lectures is that everything that has ever occurred has its significance to the degree that it relates to what God did has done for us in Jesus Christ. Mm. And so before the incarnation, it was all looking forward. After the incarnation, it's as it relates uh, back to it. And what that does then, man, is that changes the dynamics of how you read history because the the things that secularists and uh, those that do not acknowledge God might highlight, oh, yeah, those were significant things. They happened, no doubt about that. But perhaps the more significant things were what were going on, for example, in the first, second century in the catacombs mm. and where there, were, uh, there weren't historians taking notes during that yeah. time. We just know after the fact what was happening. So anyway, I encourage you to check out the Institute of Public Theology. We also have a book that's going to be coming out here oh, yeah. very shortly. Uh, this is by David Schrock. He's a pastor in Virginia. He, the book is Brothers, We Are Not Plagiarists, A Pastoral Plea to Forsake the Peddling of God's Word. And mm. so addressing this uh, issue uh, of plagiarism that we see in the pulpit today, uh, and we've seen many instances of this in, in the way in which it really is a violation of God's law in so many ways and a violation of uh, the pastoral responsibility. So we are going to be um, selling that book right now pre-pub for $7. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, if you, as you purchase that, if you would like to donate $5, for every $5 donated, we will give this book out for free at the Southern Baptist Convention coming up this June. That's right. And I think it's as you check out that that pops up and says, hey, would you like to buy a copy or multiple copies to be given away. Uh, We just want this book to get out as far and as wide as possible because it's desperately needed. I mean, we've known that, but especially this last year uh, that has been highlighted. Mm Kind of brings us up to uh, the topic we want to talk about today, which is what's the great need in our churches of Jesus Christ, in the evangelical world, and then uh, in the SBC And you and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, we're pastors. We serve together here at Grace Baptist Church. And so together with our fellow pastors, we're always trying to think through what does the church need and Mm -hmm. how how can we shepherd this flock well? And uh, one of the principles that goes into my preaching and your preaching and as we uh, talk with other guys and help them to learn to preach it comes to us from the larger catechism. I forget the exact question number now. I don't have it on the top of my head, but it asks, how should the gospel be preached? And it's a paragraph answer, but embedded in that is according to the necessity and capacity mm-hmm. of the hearers. So you got to think about what do people need and what can they handle? Mm-hmm. And that's true really in all pastoral ministry. What does the yeah. congregation need? What can the congregation handle? And you have to balance those things as you try to uh, teach the word of God. And I've given a lot of thought about a lot of thought to that as I've considered this the whole SBC scene mm-hmm. and uh, possible uh, impact role that I might have in that, that we might have as a local church. So we thought it'd be good to talk through some of those things today. Yeah, and it's interesting when we talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. I think some people who aren't a part of the SBC can think, okay, well that's not important. I'm not gonna. I don't really have any business listening to that. But when we talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, it's almost as if it's like the 
It's like the center of the evangelical world. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be in the SBC, right. but whatever happens in the SBC affects the rest of the evangelical world. And whatever problems that the SBC is facing, in some sense, they're f- the, the rest of the evangelical world is facing those same problems. So as we address issues within the Southern Baptist Convention, they're really problems that are being addressed in evangelicalism in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as part of the mission of founders, we are laboring for the reformation of churches. And yeah. so... You know, this morning, today, we want to talk about spiritual reformation. What is it? What are those things that the, the evangelical church or the Southern Baptist churches, what do they need right now? How is it that they need to be reformed? Um, and one thing that we've talked about quite a bit is just there's a lack of the fear of God mm-hmm. amongst uh, church leaders and probably even in, in the pews as well. You know, we heard uh, last year at the Southern Baptist Convention, and we've heard over and over and over again, you know, how is it that... Uh, what we do now, it's going to be seen by a watching world. And so we need to do what we're doing in light of the watching world. And there's very little consideration of, okay, God is watching us. What we do now, we're doing quorum Deo before the face of God. And how should that affect our actions? How should that affect our language? Um, We don't seem to really care too much about that. We care more what the world thinks of what we're doing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, You know, Psalm 111 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all those who practice it have good understanding. Mm. And so if we just start right there, that, okay, uh, we want good understanding, then we've got to begin to practice the fear of God. And yet there won't even be the ability to do that if you don't fear God and recognizing that that is the source mm-hmm. of all wisdom. And so we got all these strategies, all these schemes all the time. You know, we're talking about what, what can we do? What works? What's best? What, how can we uh, live well in this world as Christians? How can we push back darkness? All those kinds of things, which are not bad questions to ask. Mm-hmm. But if we're not asking a fundamental question before all those things, then, man, we can fall into pragmatism pretty quickly. That has happened, and it's just the fear of God that yeah. is the source, the beginning, the, the gateway into wisdom. I remember um, looking at this a few years ago, and, and it's, I think, over 150 times that the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is mentioned specifically in both Old and New Testaments combined. And then when you add the concept in that doesn't actually use those words, I mean, it just expands way beyond that. And so for a major theme like that, to be in the Bible and to be neglected, uh, it exposes either a superficiality of our understanding of the Bible or a lack of familiarity mm. with what the Bible actually teaches. So I, I see this as a primary concern. In fact, people have asked me, you know, hey, man, if you get elected as the SBC president, you know, what will you do? Well, the president has limited official abilities to do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. He's got a couple of specific responsibilities. But one thing I would love to do is to start changing our conversation and to put this as the number one thing we start talking about mm-hmm. is what does it mean to fear God? Yeah. Cause I, I think we've lost it in our day. Yeah. If we, if we can commit ourselves to living rightly in the sight of God, rather than commit ourselves to living in a way in which the world will approve of us. And, and when people say, you know, the world is watching, I don't think what they mean is we want the world to approve of us. I think what they mean is we want the world to be able to see us and then want to listen to what we have to say. Yeah. But I mean, the Lord is, is clear. You know, John is clear in first John, you know, don't be surprised when you face persecution. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. 
Because they hated, they hated the prophets. They hate your Lord. They're going to hate you as well. And so we should not be seeking a position in which we are not despised by the world because it's we can't attain that. It's not going to happen. Rather, we should be seeking a position where we're not despised by God, yeah. and where the things that we do are not abominated by God. And when we can do that, it doesn't matter if the world hates us. The Lord is going to save his own. He's going to bring his own into, into the church. Um, and we'll be so much more effective in what we do, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, if we are more concerned about what God thinks of us. Yeah, I, I think the, the relationship to persecution is a really important relationship because so often, and we've heard it, in our day, you know, we've heard the last couple of years of, uh, you know, you guys talk about being persecuted. You don't know what persecution is. You know, you're not being thrown to lions. You're not cutting your heads off. Come on, man up. And I mean, it's just so stupid mm-hmm. to, for Christians, thinking Christians, to uh, suggest that that's a right way to consider persecution. Persecution yeah. runs the gamut, as Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed yeah. are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely mm-hmm. for my name's sake. So reviling uh, speaking, sneering, yeah. passing you over for jobs, mm-hmm. all those things are involved in persecution. It doesn't have to be getting beheaded. And it seems like, with again, what we've heard so much recently about the world is watching, that the real impetus behind that is, hey, we want them to like us. We want them to like us rather yeah. than say, no, we're going to stand for Christ and if that costs us, which Jesus said it would, in this world you have tribulation. Paul said, as you quoted, you know, in this world you will be, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Then how do we respond to persecution? Mm-hmm. How do we handle the sneers, the uh, being passed over for jobs, being fired, being isolated, a family turning their backs on us because we are going to, follow Christ and not compromise our devotion to him rather than to go along with the relatives at a family gathering or, or whatever. There's any number of spheres mm-hmm. where this comes into play. And I, I really believe that if we strip it all back and say, why is it that it's easier just to go along with family dynamics than to honor the Lord Jesus in the way that he's called us to honor him? Mm-hmm. It's a lack of fear of God. Yeah, We're more concerned with what people think about us yeah. Than we are with God. Yeah, and besides, when you when you use that as a as a way of evangelism, you know, we want them to like us. And the old adage is true: what you win them with, you win them too. Yeah. yeah. And I think you see that as a biblical principle in Second Corinthians too, as well. Um, and if you win them to yourself, your personality, your wise words, as Paul talks about, well, you're not winning them to the gospel. But if you proclaim the gospel and live rightly before God, you're not winning them to yourself. You're winning them to the gospel. You're winning mm-hmm. them to God. Um, incidentally, Founders actually sells a shirt that says Fear God. <laughs> Fear God. That's it's a great right. shirt, and there's a great story behind it. So I encourage you to check it out on the website. Yeah, yeah. It's This is this is fundamental. Uh, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, has that litany of sins that Paul draws from the Old Testament scriptures in order to show us what uh, depravity actually looks like in bodied fashion in people. And then it just ends with that summary statement. There's no fear of God Mm. for their eyes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people think that fearing God is an Old Testament concept. And this goes back to Marcion and his division of Old Testament, New Testament, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. But Jesus himself said, don't be afraid of people who can kill your body. Mm-hmm. And that's all they can do to you. Fear him who can not only kill your body, but cast your soul into hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our Lord speaking. And so I would just encourage fellow pastors, serious Christians, to uh, do a little study in Scripture. What does the Bible say about fearing God? Let's start a conversation about that 
And if we can begin to press each other biblically mm-hmm. as to what it means to fear God, I, I think we will be far healthier uh, than we have been. And uh, I would be delighted to be a part of that kind of conversation. Need it for my own soul, need it for our church, and for all of the various relationships we have in the broader evangelical world. Yeah, and connected to that then is this um, understanding of the law of God, which I think is so lacking in modern evangelical churches, not only is a knowledge of what the law, the substance of the law of God, not only is that lacking, but even it, uh, an affirmation that it's important for us to be obedient to the law yeah. of God. You know, uh, what does it mean to be obedient to, to God's law? What is the place of God's law in the life of the believer? Yeah, it's uh, it, when you start talking about that today, you just get ready. All the charges of legalism. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're a legalist. You're a legalist. We're under grace. We're under law. Mm-hmm. All those things. But but here's here's the fundamental truth that we must never forget: the God who gave us the gospel also gave us the law, mm-hmm. and God loves His law as much as He loves His gospel. Well, if that's true, then we ought to familiarize ourselves with the law as much as we do the gospel. The, the, the problem is when people take the law and try to make it into something that it was never designed to be. It's mm-hmm. not a ladder by which we climb up to God to make ourselves acceptable Which is exactly what Paul talks about in Galatians, exactly. the whole letter. That's right. That's, it's not that. But, but it is something like a railroad track to keep us on path that God wants us to live when we are trusting the gospel. Mm-hmm. So simply because the law was never designed to save sinners. It can't do that. Never designed to do that. You try to turn it into that, you're going to wind up in hell because Mm -hmm. the law cannot be, you cannot be justified by works of the law. But simply because that's true doesn't mean there's no place for the law. Mm -hmm. The law reveals to us God's will. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I'm not the original one to say this, but that the Ten Commandments that summarize the moral law of God is a transcript of God's character. These aren't arbitrary commandments. They reveal to us who our God is, not as clearly as we have in the incarnate Christ, but most certainly, and who was the incarnate Christ? Well, he came to do God's law. He delights in doing God's law. Mm. So the law doesn't save us, cannot save us, but it shows us we need to be saved. And then we look to Christ in the gospel, and we are saved. And as saved, we say, Lord, what would you have me do? Jesus mm-hmm. said, well, if you love me, keep my commandments. Which, yeah. Oh, okay. So we go now and keep these commandments, not so God will accept us, but because he has accepted us. Yeah. And man, if we would get that much straight, then uh, we'd be spared a lot of the mysticism, a lot of the pragmatism, mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of the uh, false understandings of sanctification that permeate the evangelical world today. Yeah, you know, Christ is the king of Deuteronomy 17 who meditates on the law of God and copies the law of God, right? Christ is the the man of Psalm 1 who I think is a, a king there mm-hmm. in Psalm 1 who is planted by streams of water and meditates upon the law of God. In, um, in Matthew, he says, you know, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And so mm-hmm. he is the one who is perfectly obedient to the law of God for us in the way that we cannot be. But what our our Lord does, we should seek to do. And he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Mm-hmm. At God speaking to us saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. Obey what? His law. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we think of the Ten Commandments, the very first scripture that we were ever given was the Ten Commandments. And God himself mm-hmm. wrote it, it yeah. on, on stone by the finger of God, wrote it on stone. Uh, and so there's lots of debate, you know, are the Ten Commandments uh, still binding today? Well, yes, nine of them are. That one, <laughs> That one's a little sketchy there on the Sabbath. 
Um, but I would say, no, even the Sabbath is a reflection of the very character of God. And God is the one in whom we can be satisfied. God mm. is the one in whom we can find eternal rest and, and the one for whom we have been created to find eternal rest in. Um, and so, yeah, all, all of the Ten Commandments apply in, in the way that the, the Lord then applies them in the new covenant and the way that the apostles then apply them in the new covenant are wonderful. And it's just such a blessing yeah. to be able to see the law of God as a, as a good thing, as a blessing and to obey them, knowing that I can never obey them perfectly. But as our confession says in the second London confession, um, those who obey in good faith because they're in Christ, God sees their mm. even tarnished obedience as perfect obedience in Christ. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I used to do this, but it's so embarrassing I quit doing it. I used to, uh, in, in different contexts, ask people, and often I do this even with pastors, you know, how many of you believe in the Ten Commandments? And everybody raised their hand. Let's say, how many of you can name them? And it's astonishing. You know, how many Christians today just can't even name the Ten Commandments? And so, again, here's something I would encourage pastors to do. Man, teach your congregation to memorize the Ten Commandments, especially kids. Mm -hmm. uh, I did this early on here uh, at Grace. would have a little contest with children and promise them an ice cream sundae or, you know, take them to Dairy Queen or something like that once they memorize the Ten Commandments. And uh, you got the parents in on it because if their children are learning them, the parents are going to have to quiz them on that. And just to get the that summary of God's moral transcript in their minds. It's healthy. It's right. It's good. So I think we need a return to the law of God. I think it was J. Gresham Machen said that wherever there is a low view of the law of God, legalism dominates. Yeah. So pray for a high view of the law of God so that we will not be legalists. Yeah, because as soon as you remove the law of God, it creates a vacuum in the law of man comes into that vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, you, you're going to obey somebody. Mm -hmm. You're going to have some standard. And if it's not God's standard, then you're going to be subject to everybody else's or if your it own It may standard. be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going <laughs> to serve, serve somebody. somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Dylan lives. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another thing that I've been thinking about, we talk about here, is to, along with the, the law, confess an unashamed commitment to the gospel. You know, Romans 1, 16, 17, Paul says that. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So that gospel, man, we gotta, we gotta, we, we gotta not apologize. The fact mm -hmm. that we have a king yep. who came into the world as the eternal son of God, took on flesh, lived a, a human life of complete obedience to the law of God, mm -hmm. earned righteousness by his obedience, and then died under the curse of that law on the cross as if he were a sinner in behalf of sinners. And God raised him from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven and is now engaging that heavenly session where he intercedes for us until he returns. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the gospel. It's who Jesus is, what he's done, why that matters. And we just need to proclaim that, yeah. knowing that when we do that, we are actually assaulting a lot of the ideologies and philosophies of our day that mm -hmm. say, no, 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 I am the master of my own destiny. I'm the king of my own life. The, the state is the king. The state has the authority to tell us how to live. All of those false ideas of who is ultimate, mm -hmm. they, they are assaulted by a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and not only are they assaulted, assaulted externally, but they're assaulted internally as those ideas begin. I'm eat the best of us, the people mm -hmm. who are, are are most in tune with what the Word of God has to say. Those 
we live in this world and those ideas begin to root in our own hearts and our own minds. Mm-hmm. And if we allow those to go unassaulted, if we allow our garden to grow without picking the weeds, uh, then they'll overtake the garden. And then those ideologies will even overtake us. And so mm-hmm. we need to proclaim the, that gospel not only externally, but also internally to ourselves. Absolutely. I need the gospel as much today as ever. Mm-hmm. The first moment I believed, uh, I don't need it any more then than I need it today. We live by the gospel. It's not the threshold into the house. It's the whole house. And we get that, then we teach God's grace in the gospel. It sets you free. It sets you free to try to obey the law without making it a means whereby God accepts you. But it also sets you free to not have to satisfy or try to satisfy all the demands of these uh, other idols. Mm -hmm. And, And we see that today in the idol of the self you know, well, this is my true self. And so I've got to be true to myself, which means I've got to go against what God has clearly revealed to be his will. Well, guess what? That's not your true self yeah. because you don't get to define your true self. The God who created you and the God who has provided redemption in behalf of people like you is the God who gets to define who you really are, mm-hmm. what your your true self is. Yeah. Reality is reality and it's not dependent upon what you perceive to be reality or whatever, what any subject perceives to be reality. It's dependent upon what God has made reality to be. That's right. And with the gospel, you know, it seems that we hear the word gospel far more often than we actually hear the gospel itself. Absolutely. Gospel above all. Yeah. Gospel. How many, how many conferences and conventions have we had with that title? Um, but we, we hear the word more than we hear the gospel itself. And then we also hear the word more than we actually live light life in light of the gospel in light of the fact that we have been redeemed by Christ. Um, and so if we can just get that, that liturgy of continually repeating the gospel to myself, continually repeating the gospel, it doesn't get boring. It doesn't get old. It, it doesn't become something that, oh, it's just, you know, I just said that yesterday. Oh, the preacher just preached that last week. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to tune out now, but rather hearing it. And so that you can say it and it can be second nature to yourself, the yeah. reality of the gospel. And it, it, you see the, the unending connections that it has to all of life. I mean, Second uh, Timothy two eight is is a verse that just resonates in, in me all the time. Paul, in prison near the end of his life, tells Timothy, "Remember Jesus Christ." Mm-hmm. Really, you know, is, is is Timothy in danger of forgetting Christ? Well, not details or facts about Christ, but forgetting Christ in terms of the implications, applications of what Christ has done. Absolutely, mm-hmm. well, that's our problem. That's why we need to remember. Jesus Christ. So that would be another subject I would love to get a conversation going about yep. is the nature of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, the utility of the gospel for all of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are many other issues that um, are certainly unpopular in our day. For instance, the the role of men and women mm, in the yeah. church uh, and not only in the church, but the role of men and women in the family. And even the most unpopular would be the roles of men and women in society. Yeah. Um, but the, the differences between men and women and that God has indeed created two different sexes, two different genders, whichever terminology you want to use, there are two different ones and they <laughs> are inviolable and you can only be one or the other. That's right. Um, so that, that issue. And then the, the issue of the authority and sufficiency of scripture um, in our churches is, is so important. And I think, again, this is one of those that we repeat often but we don't practice and we don't believe the way that we say that we believe. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of theoretical inerrantists mm-hmm. among us. And I think all of us can be in certain ways, exactly that where we affirm 
the scriptures, but then we neglect the scriptures practically. And we say, oh, yes, this is God's word, but then we live on the basis of some other authority. Or we say, yes, the scripture is sufficient, as Paul clearly teaches it is in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But then we say, oh, but we need sociologists to help us think through that. Or we need a higher standard in order yeah. for the church to know what to do about these certain types of sins. And it's, it's just a betrayal of what we profess with our mouths whenever we don't follow through taking the Word of God seriously. That doesn't mean that we're inerrant interpreters. I mean, we, yeah. we don't believe that. That's a danger. You can mm-hmm. quickly switch from, I believe the Scripture's inerrant, to I think I have the inerrant understanding and uh, ability to apply the Scripture. We need to be very humble yeah. about that, always willing to learn, but learn on the basis of who can help us understand this Word better. And anybody that does that, serves us well. And in the, it really, that's a kind of a substratum of what you mentioned about men and women. Mm-hmm. God's the one who created us male and female. He's the one who said men, qualified men can be pastors in churches, not women. You can't have a qualified woman be a pastor of a church mm-hmm. because God limits it yep. to men. This is his decision. And we see that being bend, bent and played with all the time today, even yeah. among those who say, we believe the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, there's a problem there if you can affirm that and then say, but women can be pastors too, or women should preach to men in the mixed congregation gatherings of God's church. Um, There's some real difficulties that you've got to do exegetical gymnastics to overcome in order to arrive at that practical position. Yeah, and sometimes the problem in that is churches, individuals don't have a biblical understanding of what a pastor is. Yeah. And so there's a certain kind of pastor and only that kind of, only a man can serve in that role as a pastor. But then there's other kinds of pastors and women can be those kind of pastors. But the Bible just doesn't give us those distinctions, those, those options. No, you, in one sense, you have to admire the creativity that uh, sometimes <laughs> flows out of those who are trying just to make what they already want to do or what the culture will accept to somehow square with scripture. And yet that's exactly the problem that needs to be addressed. Well, these are some of the uh, uh, spiritual dynamics of Reformation that I see we need to press for in our day. Um, Every church ought to be thinking about these things. Our church needs to continue to think about these things. Uh, We ought to, as pastors, try to encourage conversation about these things and press one another biblically so that we can honor Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, this, again, it's his world. uh, It's his word. It's his church. We're his people. And so we are obligated to uh, live under his authority. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us today on The Sword and the Trial. I hope this has been a beneficial conversation for you. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have thoughts about this, let us know. And also, if this conversation has been helpful, uh, would you subscribe to uh, your favorite podcast platform to The Sword and Trial and uh, spread this around to others. Send this to people that you think might be helped and benefited by it as well. Thanks. Thanks.